Hi. Hey, this is Christian. Hi. Oh, I'm glad that this worked. I've never used this before. <laughs> <laughs> and Joe, too. I mean, you're a country away. This is the miracle of electronic communication. <laughs> oh, is that right? Where Where are you now, Mila? Uh, I'm in San Diego. Um, hmm. So yeah, pretty far. <laughs> oh, you, you, I, you don't mean a separate country, Joe? I thought you meant she was. A, I thought she was. You know, it's a summertime. She's across the country. It's summertime fun time. I thought maybe she was like away. You know, abroad. Oh yeah, that yeah. could be right. You just mean meant a, a country's breadth. Yes, yeah, a, a, a nation full. away. <laughs> uh, transcontinental. <laughs> yeah, but not intercontinental. <laughs> True, intra, as opposed to inter. Oh, Fun boy. with Latin. This, this is, is what the this listeners tune in for. Fascinating, fascinating episode so far. <laughs> well, thank you, Mila, for for joining us to talk about your your paper, which I enjoyed so much. Um, really, from the first word, I love the title. <laughs> thank you. Sh- uh, short titles are really in vogue. It should come as no surprise to listeners that Joe would be all over a title called Crackdowns. <laughs> uh, you're right. It has a certain um, uh, kind of Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, fierceness to it that's pleasing. No, and after, it's... after 130-something episodes of this show, I, I, you know, I said, okay, well, you know, Joe got Mila. What's the, what are we going to read? And I pulled it up to see what paper we'd be talking about. And I read the title, and I'm like, oh, boy. Just... <laughs> <laughs> this is Joe is sending me a subtle signal here. He's, he's tired of my nonsense. Not true, not true. Um, no, it's it's fascinating in part because, as as you say at a few different points in the paper, and, and you know, uh, uh, our style is to just sort of jump right in. So um, what you say at a few points in the paper is that the thing that the last few years has gotten so much attention, and I think we've even talked about it uh, on the show a few times, what's yeah. gotten so much attention is sort of the mirror image, which is, uh, which in the spirit of calling uh, a crackdown a crackdown, maybe we could call it a let up, um, <laughs> where you've got the sort of discretionary non-enforcement that looks as like it's approaching categorical. Right. And so it seems like a rulemaking without a rulemaking, and that has gotten lots of people exercised. I think we talked this about Obama's this Amanda Frost. And, Obama's immigration right, orders, DAPA right, and right, DACA right. and all that kind of right. stuff. Um, and so this was interesting, and it's just come out in the Virginia Law Review. It, it, this is interesting because it's, it's, as I say, it's the mirror image, right? And, and it's so fascinating yeah. to see how little law there is in, in this. So, Mila, what attracted you to this, to this topic? Part of it was just thinking a, a lot about the uh, interesting fact that these policies of non-enforcement were 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 getting all of this attention, um, and you know, and they are they are really important for for structural constitutional law. Um, but the but at the same time as these non-enforcement policies were were uh, were being debated and litigated in the Fifth Circuit, and you know, there was a per curiam opinion about a year ago by the Supreme Court in that case. Um, at the same time as all that litigation was unfolding. Um, there was also like really active immigration enforcement by the Obama administration um, that you know that w- was occurring in parallel to this announced non-enforcement policy. Um, so that so that so so I started to think more about you know prospective enforcement and and then and then just one morning you know a couple of years ago I I uh, you know I, I I still read the New York Times even though I'm. Uh, out here in San Diego, I was, you know, I, I read the cover stories about the nail salon crackdowns um, in mm. New York, mm-hmm. and I started, you know, and I just stared at the word, and I just thought, what is that thing? You know, what is that <laughs> crackdown? Like, what, you know, is it a rule? Is it's not? Is it an adjudication? You know, where, you know, where does the law um, come in to to cabinet or constrain it or check it? You know, it, and and I and I and as I 
thought about it more, I, you know, I really realized how unified a phenomenon it is across these different types of law, administrative, civil, criminal, um, and that it was worth talking about in its own right, just in the, you know, in the same way as, um, as waiver or non-enforcement is worthy of, of sort of unique attention. So one element of this that is, it goes back to almost the beginning of this show, Joe. Mm. Speed trap law. Speed traps. Because one of your one one of your key examples. This is the one I always. You know, I teach rules and standards using the speed limit. Sure. Uh, you know, discretion. All these ideas are wrapped up in the way. Like, what is the law of the speed limit? Is always a a good question, right? Right. It, it makes this law in action, law in law in the books distinction really. You know, because it's not really fifty five. You go fifty six, you're not going to be pulled over. Maybe if you go sixty, maybe it depends on their. Uh, uh, you know what time of month it is in terms of their quotas and everything else, like all this kind of, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting question. And, and here it is in crackdowns, right? Because uh, you point to like, well, what is, let's take seriously the idea that there is some law or, or something which is akin to law, which is governing the decision whether suddenly to go from a regime of, well, it's 55, but if you're going 60, we're not going to pull you over to a regime of strict enforcement. Like, you know, you know, a legitimate reason to do that might be, hey, there have been some deaths on this road. We've had some bad accidents. And now suddenly not a mile per hour over 55. We're right. going to get serious about enforcement. And we, we've got one such road here in Athens on the way to the law school on, you know, that downhill on uh, on Lumpkin, mm. right, where they're always out there with radars and everything. And you really do need to go the speed limit there. And right. so there's some areas, at least, where there's kind of constant enforcement. And uh, well, anyway, you point to some of these in, in the paper, which... In some ways, you might think of as less um, less dramatic or or less uh, you know to the extent you think of crackdowns as 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 possibly bad for their uh, um, for the for the way they might target minority populations or the vulnerable or currying favor with majorities and you know in all the ways that we can get into Mila that you talk about some of the pathologies of of crackdowns. But what was I going to say? Um, I'm thinking of too many things at one time here. Mm. You might think that a speed limit crackdown could be a totally good thing, you know, if it is about, you know, here, here's a problem and uh, because of safety or something else. And suddenly we're going to get really serious about this right here. And it's a way of kind of, you know, talking about the community's values, but doing it through the law, which is in the background. And maybe that's a way of. to like, let's, yeah. Mila, how, what would be a way to talk about or describe a crackdown that you would think on reflection would turn out to have been a good idea? And maybe if we could start with that one before we turn to the yeah. sort of the pathology one, yeah, maybe that would be helpful. Yeah, so I, so I that that's that is I think helpful um, to to begin as a beginning point. Um, you know, so so there's some some types of crackdowns uh, just sort of are, just speak for themselves. I mean, they self justify. So it would be it would be weird to think about having a crackdown on investigations, say, of homicide. Because you would assume that the, that the law against homicide would always be maximally enforced uh, in a in a in a in a society. So, if like a crackdown on on homicides, or you know, a crackdown on you know kidnapping of children or whatever, you don't really read. I don't think you really read about those that much because those are already laws that command and sort of demand um, our full our, our full law enforcement intention and and you know resources. Yeah, your reaction to that headline that, you know, crack down on murders would be like, crap, we weren't doing that already? Like, you <laughs> well, well, you would not want to hear about that. It might be it might, it might be useful here to distinguish between two different kinds of things and, and to see which one you think is a crackdown, or, or maybe it's both. So, so one sense in which you might see a crackdown on murders is suddenly, 
we're we're going to stop like giving a wink and a nod to murders that are that are not as bad, right? And, and instead, we're going to that we're, sounds terrible. We're going to prosecute every <laughs> like a crackdown. We're going to prosecute every murder that we see, right? So that's that that does seem ridiculous, right? The other though is about enforcement priorities, and you could imagine a crackdown on killings, which suddenly you know you you beef up the number of cops, you beef up the number of. Uh, of investigators, you throw more resources at something. It's totally possible to imagine that kind of crackdown on murders. Are you imagining both kinds of crackdowns within your definition of crackdown, Mila? Or are you just imagining the decision once you are presented with a law violation to enforce it? Um, I think it's both. I mean, I uh, but I but I but I think that the it's I think the paper focuses um, more on the latter. But I do think that the general problem of um, allocation of enforcement resources is implicated by this uh, by this paper as well um, so I so it's not just that you know if it's if the crime is in front of you on a silver platter do you charge it or not you know that, mm-hmm. that's not where the crackdown decision ends it's also things like sending out investigators um, or sending out police officers to uh, trap offenders or you know making sure you open a file on every single complaint that comes in uh, those are those those are, are sort of within my definition of what would qualify as a crackdown. Like you refer to, like in in New York, even before Giuliani, sending out more um, agents to kind of in turnstile jumping stings on the subway, right? I mean, that's right. a decision to try to catch more of a crime that you know is happening. And in right. in that sense, like you know, murder and kidnapping these these are things which are because no crime ever is fully enforced, right? I mean, we don't devote all social resources to the detection and prosecution of murders. True. Yes. Yeah. So it's not that the crackdown would be, it's not that it's impossible to imagine. It would just be uh, initially jarring to think that there was, you know, neglect of those crimes, but then you might, and then you might also think, well, you know, very good. Of course, of course, more resources should be devoted um, to, uh, to, to, preventing more murders if there are, or to punishing murders if that um, if it hasn't been already um, but there are other situations of, or just to move away from just like a from a good crackdown or a self-justified crackdown there are other situations where where you know you you start to ask questions why you know why suddenly is there a shift of resources in this direction in, you know against that group of people at this particular time and so forth and that's where the that's where the paper sort of begins so I, I still don't feel like I have a handle on what what a good one would be like what. So so let's imagine, for example, it's you're, you're in a larger mid-sized city and there's been um, uh, some food poisoning outbreaks and, and you see some headlines uh, from emergency rooms and hospitals. And so the mayor or the city manager says to the health inspection team, um, that does restaurant health inspections. You know, we really need to get more serious about uh, citing restaurants that are falling below uh, the par on uh, cleanliness and, and other things like that. So, you know, for at least the next three months, we really need to step up uh, because this wave of some f- of food poisonings that people are experiencing that are producing these headlines, which are, is a signal to us, right, that we don't quite have the right, we're not at quite the right enforcement posture for protecting public health. So go do that, right? Does that strike you as a good crackdown or a bad one? How should we think about its goodness or its badness? I mean, you have a whole model for thinking about it, which I think is really... All the principal agent stuff. And yeah, it, and yeah, it, yeah, but, but yeah. before we get to the more formal assessment yeah. of it, just how does that strike you just on the surface? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think what the, the thing that you have to ask is whether or not the. I mean, it's just this is. It's embarrassing to call it a model. I mean, d d is there really a good reason to do to deploy enforcement resources in those ways or not? I mean, is it is there does the do the inspectors, you know, think that those are that that's an artificial you know uptick of reports for some for some reason, or do they think that the that their their investigations or their inspections have actually been deficient? Um, are there more pressing uh, priorities that that deserve their attention first? I mean, is, is the point of all of this just to generate, you know, a press release or uh, something that'll uh, get the press off the, the, the mayor's back or the, the, the town council's back? Or is it actually uh, to promote public safety? So I so the, you know, on the on, on, on like a stylized set of facts, it's hard to say, well, that's good. That's bad. Um, I think, it, mm -hmm. you know, it, it really comes down to what the what the decision-making process is and the quality of that decision-making process. Um, and I'm just, you know, I think that the the overall gist of the paper is just to say public servants should be public regarding um, and concerned with the public interest and not concerned and not, and not distorted in their actions by these principal agent problems. Although in the, in the paper you do, you do point out, although you argue against it, I think that that perhaps even bad crackdowns, as Joe's referring to them, you know, crackdowns for bad reasons, like to get the press off my back or to show my right. boss that I'm do, that I'm serious about this, like we, or, mi those, or mixed reasons, right? Can have good results, right? Right? Yeah. So, so we may actually want. I mean, you know, one one whole, you know, one thing you want with a principal agent setup is that even if the agent is self interested, you want them to serve the principal's interest, and so, so actually, you know, a. Uh, a bad crackdown done for those kinds of reasons that serves the public interest is maybe not a bad thing, right? Yeah, you know, so it's it's interesting. So this is something that um, an old uh, professor and, and and great mentor of mine pointed out to me, and um, and it, when I was sent, when I sent him a, a draft, and you know, he said, you know, sometimes you might have bad reasons for doing a thing, um, and uh, and the thing might still be. Uh, might still be in the public interest. Um, I I don't have a a very good I think uh, I don't have a very principled reason for saying why I think you should still not do those crackdowns or strive not to do them. Right. <laughs> and just I just think it's too it's too much of, of uh, what's the word letting the camel's uh, nose into the tent or letting the fox into the henhouse. I mean mm -hmm. once 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 you let let in that sort of family of justifications then. Uh, then, then kind of all bets are off, right? So, because then you can always say, "Oh, this was actually a good idea," even though I was, even though I was bribed to drop that prosecution, or even though I was bribed to, you know, <laughs> crack down in that way. Uh, well, it all worked out great for the public in the end. So, <laughs> right. uh, you know, you ought to not uh, judge me too harshly. Uh, that just doesn't seem like a good way to run things. So, so it's like, yeah, the it, way to keep your aim true is to continue to strive to keep your aim true. Well, I, I was going to say it could be like a dynamic kind of concern, right? That that if your reason for engaging in a crackdown is to get the press off your back or to satisfy a boss, right? Then mm -hmm. then then whether we think this is actually a good thing depends totally on the motivations of the press and the boss, right? And if, if you're serving those interests, then perhaps your reason doesn't matter so much um, if you're actually serving those interests. But agents who have that kind of reason, that kind of you know, get the press off the back, serve the boss kinds of reasons, will not distinguish between the good and bad reasons of the principle, right? And so a press which is totally like anti-immigrant, round them up, send them home, you know, xenophobic, 
when that presses on this agent's back, that agent will respond to that, you know, because that because the agent's reasons are not sensitive to good public policy, good law enforcement. They are just sensitive to minimizing, um, you know, public embarrassment. And and so so maybe dynamically setting in place a, a legal regime which which encourages or um, which encourages agents to have you know, internalized good law enforcement reasons, good policy reasons is important, right? Because yeah. even even if this time, like, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop everybody who's driving over 56 because my boss wants to raise money. That may be a bad reason. Um, uh, whereas if the boss wants to save lives, that's a good reason. But if all I care about is pleasing the boss, then I'm insensitive as to which ultimate reason I'm serving. Yeah, that, yeah I, 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 that's a great way to, ex- to explain it. So across a run of situations, you could wind up be missing the mark far more often because you've made yourself insensitive to the things you really ought to be thinking about. Or even if it's not more often, maybe you open yourself up to the far greater danger, right? Mm. I mean, because when the right. when the fascists come to town, right, are you, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> right. It's not just frequency, it's severity of any given right. instance. So Mila, when you're thinking about how to... Maybe I'll put it this way. So one of the one of the things about the, the paper that I most enjoyed, because I... It, because I hadn't given this question any serious thought before, I just felt a lot of it was very revelatory. But it, but it seemed to me that, in a way, the most powerful kind of facet of the discussion was the your insight that um, a lot of the crackdown move is a can be or seems to often be rooted in a kind of literalistic approach to statutes, and that mm-hmm. that crackdowns are ultimately an interpretive act. Now, they, it seems like they're bad interpretation rather than good interpretation uh, if, if they're a bad crackdown. But can you say more about that, how you think about this as a, as a question of interpretation? Yeah, we started off by talking about speed limits. Um, and I, I feel like pretty much if I could make one of those posters about you know everything I learned about the law, I learned in kindergarten, it would be like there's everything I learned about, I've learned about public law basically boils down to speed limits, <laughs> vehicles in the park. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and those are the, really the two um, motivating fact patterns of this article. Um, and then, you know, and they're, they're instructive, you know, and, they're, and a lot flows from them because they, they both speak to this question of, you know, when, of when uh, is and when isn't literal enforcement of some piece of statutory text, some piece of positive law, when is it justifiable and what makes it justifiable? Um, and with, you know, and it's it just, it's interesting to me, it was interesting to me as I as I thought about this topic that, you know, where you have a posted speed limit, um, there's nobody, nobody will say that enforcing the law at 56, uh, enforcing that posted speed limit um, is unjustified, even though you know when you read judicial opinions about statutory text, there's you know there's often statements in there that say you know don't be overly literal, uh, you know pay attention to the to the purpose or to the broader structure, the legislative plan, um, and so on. And so I started to I, so I started to think about the parallels between the mayor's role in interpreting the statute or the sheriff's role in interpreting the speed limit and the judge's role in interpreting the law. Um, and in both contexts, it seems to me that the, the responsibility, you know, the, the thing that's incumbent on the, on the reader of the law and the enforcer of the law is to try to get to the best reading of the statute. 
um, and that the kind of carte blanche or, or free pass to literalism that um, that enforcers, prosecutors, you know, agency heads, mayors, and so on enjoy is just a very anomalous and weird part of our law. You know that we this they 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 seem to occupy um, a sort of uniquely um, unconstrained or a, a new, a new, uh, what I call this, you know, island of simple literalism. Like they live on this island of simple literalism, even though, um, you know, other interpreters in the law, like mainly judges, um, are, 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 are not on that island. <laughs> they, they're, they're concerned with these broader, uh, with br these broader questions. Um, but, you know, but when, but when you're setting an enforcement policy, you know, 55 miles per hour means no driving faster than 56. Um, you know, you are you you are interpreting what the statute's best meaning is, um, and how it should be enforced because you know that's the responsibility that you've taken on yourself. And so, I think that the same considerations that it, that you know a judge should apply should also imply, apply uh, to that enforcing officer. Well, that I mean, that sounds quite reasonable, and it, it does make one wonder how we got in the situation that we're in, right? Because it seems like judicial review, for example, of agency rulemaking. Uh, judges in an appellate court would not put up with a, an agency's rulemaking that was sort of boneheadedly literal uh, and weird, right? They would say, well, that's not appropriate. The evidence doesn't justify that. That doesn't seem rational. Um, they would find a way, right, to make sure that the agency was acting reasonably, uh, It is my intuition, right? Um, and yet when it comes to uh, executive action that is not of that sort of crystallized form, a rulemaking, but is instead just the executive out there executing the law, the judges seem so hesitant to do that. What, how did we get in this situation? Yeah, so, this, so this is, um, you know, I, I think it's just a, it's a, it's a combination of a, of a bunch of different doctrines um, and practices. So, you know, part of it has to do with the fact that you know you don't have to announce or promulgate your enforcement policy um, in a in a formal way in criminal law um, or in administrative law. And even if you do an administrative law, then you're not going to be um, you know that's not going to be treated as like a final agency action that someone has standing to challenge unless the enforcement policy you know rises to the level where it's binding on the agency. And I should say here that this area of law is uh, really uh, complicated. Uh, but I think the best mm -hmm. understanding of those cases um, is that you know the policy has to be binding on the agency. So on, so right just right there, there's an absence of reviewable policy. Um, then, and then there's also these, you know, these cases that that's that have set out this idea of, you know, pro prosecutorial discretion and, you know, the Heckler line of cases, um, which which treat as an aspect of Article Two's enforcement power, executive power, um, you know, the 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 power to uh, bring or to not bring uh, cases. And I think in the in in a couple of recent Supreme Court cases that I talk about towards the end of the article, you see the justices going back and forth with the with the Solicitor General's office saying, you know, why did you charge this case? You know, basically, why did you read the statute in this incredibly literal and weird way? This is, these are the Yates and Bond cases. 
Yeah, the Yates and the Bond cases, and yeah. there's a there's a there's an exchange, an interesting exchange with um, Justice Kennedy where you know where, where the where the government's lawyer says, look, you know, he 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 has he he can't assert that. Uh, something like he can't assert that prosecutorial discretion should have been exercised here. That's not something that that's not a claim. And Kennedy says, well, I just don't think we should, you know, refer to that concept or use it anymore. That it's not <laughs> something that can be judicially enforced. Bond is that case where the just to get the facts. Yeah, it, it's the it's the case where a woman was prosecuted under the chemical weapons ban treaty um, or the statute enabling that for putting was it a was it a um uh, an insecticide it was some kind of poison that she put on the i think car door handle and maybe right. front door hand uh, front door like door handles and mailbox handles or something yeah, like that a, yeah a, a, of of a woman who was having an affair with her husband or was it the other way around or was it the the paramour who was doing it anyway one of them yeah i think i think the 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 ex-wife put it like tried to poison the paramours uh, tried to poison, poison the, the paramour, and she happened to be a chemist who had access to some of these uh, chemicals. Yeah. In any event, doesn't seem like the kind of right. It's it's that's not Bashar al-Assad chemically attacking his it own citizens to, or something. Yeah, it doesn't like. seem it's to not, be a prosecution it, consistent with the reasons why the legislature and and the international community adopted this test ban. Right. Right. So in or light the, of that, the weapons ban. Yeah. And then and then um, Yates was the case about a guy. Who destroyed some grouper, some fish that he had uh, that he had caught, or and he had over he had overfished, um, and he, I think he he threw them back in, or he got rid of them somehow. And when his um, when uh, the, he was apprehended by the authorities, and he was prosecuted under a provision of the Sarbanes Oxley Act uh, concerning destruction of basically destruction of of, of evidence, you know, uh, and that and that statute also. You know, the statute was was intended to apply, or was obviously written to apply to a very different problem than destroying <laughs> fish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. corporate malfeasance and kind of your Enron, right? World Worldcom was that the name? Yeah, uh, not not so much people out fishing and destroying fish, even though like in both of these cases, the person, the the people involved did a bad thing. It's just right. the bad thing that they did was didn't seem to be captured by the statute that was being. Uh, resorted to. Yeah. And you could say, I mean, I, w- what I think is is interesting, your take on them seemed to be that you could think of it as a soft touch check on an on a unwise crackdown. Of course, they're not written that way. They can't be um, because of the their sort of this doctrinal gap where a court doesn't really have a good way to talk about this is an illicit exercise of the executive power because it is, you know, not faithful or however else you want to phrase it doctrinally. But but it, I mean, it does seem like saying in Yates, well, when Congress said tangible objects, it meant tangible objects in which you could record information and you can't write on the side of a fish, right? right. Or when, when, when it, it passes weapons treaty implementing legislation, that should color how we refer to chemicals or something like that. It seems a bit distorting. Like it's worrying that, to me at least, that that courts can't be forthright yet. Do you think they should be more forthright about it? Well, basically, yes, I do. I mean, they, you know, so in both of those cases, the I think what the court wound up doing was uh, sort of imposing like a, a, a almost like a punitive damages award against 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 the Department of Justice. Like the the, the, the court says, if you keep charging, and, and they said this in oral argument, it's sort of the opinions are suffused with this kind of um, raillery and uh, mockery of the charging choice. The, the court is essentially saying to the DOJ, 
you know, if you keep charging in this way, we're going to lop off portions of criminal statutes. <laughs> we're going to make, um, you know, the we're going to read this document destruction statute in a narrow way um, in, um, in, in bond, um, or we're going to treat domestic crimes as beyond the, the reach of this um, chemical, uh, chemical weapons statute because of uh, federalism concerns. And these are implausible ways to resolve these cases. I mean, I think actually what these cases were, were cases that said, you ought to exercise prosecutorial discussion, but the court wasn't willing to write them in that way. Um, and I don't, I just, I don't know whether the court will ever be willing to, to open up a, you know, a line of faithfully precedent. Um, it is, it would just be a, a big switch or be a big change in direction from what's gone before. Um, and so instead what, what you have is this sort of oblique encouragement of statutory, uh, or sorry, of prosecutorial discretion, uh, through this, like through these kind of statutory punitive, uh, damages awards. If the root of a lot of the crackdown stuff that's uh, pathological is literalism, it seems like though that this is this is sort of a downside of textualism that that courts that want to be textualist have to be willing to grasp the the thorn and say and occasionally they do. I mean King against Burwell at, which you talk about uh, at least in the notes as an example of you know the the court being explicit, you know, you can't interpret a statute fairly unless you take a fair look at the plan that the statute is designed to implement. Okay, good. Um, but that means you have to be willing to call BS in those terms <laughs> on a literalist interpretation of a statute. Like th That's part of your responsibility yeah. as a court. If you're going to be saying textualism is really important as a methodology, but it has a downside, right? Which is literalism that's abusive and, and in bad faith. Because words can be a, the the words can be a weapon, right? And Congress gives the executive weapons when it when it writes statutes that are that are open to broad interpretation. And part of what you 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 write is that um, there's an expectation, like you know, there, there's an expectation about how that will be enforced, right? It, that's part of, I guess, this plan. It's a vision for the future, which is not about using this weapon for all it's worth against, especially against like one segment of the population or another at certain times or, or not right. other times. Yeah. The the hard part of, the, I think the hard part of this though, Mila, is that we're living at a time where, and, and again, I, I like a lot this, the notion of looking to faithful execution, trying to elaborate on what that means of executing the laws in good faith. And that's a constitutional principle. Um, but you know, we're living at a time when it's awfully difficult <laughs> to uh, sit with the idea that, ah, what we're going to rely on is the good faith norm-based behavior of elected executive officials. Right. Right. This is not the greatest time to be making that argument, um, it seems to me. That doesn't mean it's not the right argument and not the right answer, but um, it does seem a little bit um, worrying. Right. If there were ever a boneheaded literalist, he's currently sitting in the White House, isn't he? I mean, I, 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 uh, I am not uh, confident that 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 the president has given any thought to a school of statutory interpretation. <laughs> Fair enough. What was uh, funny about this article was that it was it was it was written, submitted, accepted, and basically completed in its editing more or less by oh November fourth. Uh, 2016. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, 
and then because of the you know the the, the time gap between then and the uh, election, it you know it, it you know this was this this was an article that was written about crackdowns under Obama and you know and and under you know state and local governments before 2016. So I did not have in mind uh, what what we now face. Two things. One is that the executive branch is much, much, much bigger than just the president. Of course. And there's a civil service. There are U.S. attorneys and there are deputy U.S. attorneys and there's assistant uh, U.S. attorneys uh, all throughout the United States who I hope may, you know, may take to heart uh, you know, this articulation of what of what their responsibilities are. I mean, they probably already knew that, <laughs> knew, that knew, you know, knew that they that, uh, knew that they ought to be uh, acting in a way that's faithful to the public interest, but, you know, it might still be worthwhile to, for them to uh, think about it in those terms. And and then the other the other question is, well, is what about courts and what can courts do in, in this moment? So towards the end of the article, I, I, I encouraged courts to be more proactive in using these kind of discretionary tools uh, in order to push back against bad charging uh, policies or bad, or bad crackdowns. Um, and I think that some of that has started to occur, um, even in the last few months. Um, I recently read an, a concurrence by uh, Judge Reinhardt uh, concerning a deportation of um, a man who had, you know, I think he had a DUI, um, dec- you know, many many years ago, um, and was being deported on that basis. And you know, and he wrote a very, the judge wrote a very eloquent concurrence where he said. You know, this is basically this is not a good use of uh, prosecutorial uh, power. This is not a good use of the power to deport. Um, and I think, you know, in in the in in, in other contexts, and when when other enforcement uh, cases come before uh, the federal courts and, and and the state courts, but really the federal courts, that they ju- the judges, you know, ought to ought to encourage. Um, the, the prosecutors and the agency officials before them uh, to, uh, to 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 be more sensitive to the to the public interest and to not just uh, you know blindly follow the the demands of a of a you know of a veto crackdown or some policy choice that's been set down by from on high. Can I pull the most like stereotypically annoying move and ask about? some of my ideas. Oh, please. <laughs> is that, is that, is that okay? Joe, you're, 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 you're wincing. No, I'm wincing. smiling. You, uh, you need to check your glasses. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, your, your face is covered. All I see are uh, eyes and I just assume right. I'm smiling with my eyes. Then. Uh, so a long time ago, I wrote, and I wrote this paper about the public private distinction and, and a kind of couple dimensions around which it operates. And, and one of them is lawmaking, right? We've got public and private lawmakers. And, and another is this dimension, which I, you can kind of think of as an, as enforcement, but but another way to think of it is like who has the power to force an adjudication? Is it does a private party have a power to enforce adjudication to force it an adjudication, or does a or or does a public entity have that, or does just one? And so like private private is contract and privately enforced public laws tort, and and then public public is criminal law. And um, so the public private is a little less important here. But what's interesting to me is that. Um, when I was writing that paper, I was became aware of all kinds of blind spots that we have because there's a whole law which regulates the making of law by public and private actors, and I just call that generally constitutional law. And that constitutional law on the private side is really what we study in first-year contracts like offer and acceptance and and unconscionability, et cetera. And on the on on the public side, it's like you know the 
for statutes, it's if you're going to make public law, they have to pass it and the president has to sign it, all this kind of stuff. And there are due process norms and other things. But there are a lot of areas in, in the making of public law that are that are actually not so, you know, where, where it does seem to be kind of a wild west, namely substantive common law making by courts, right? I mean, what are the rules of that? You know, there, there is no, there's nothing like the Constitution, which, which specifies how judges make common law, right? There's this, there are theories of precedent and what they have to be read for and judges criticize one another for adhering to these norms or, or not. So, so there are areas in terms of that, that first dimension about the kind of the governing of the making of law, some of which are very formally described and some of which are not. And in fact, you know, Marbury versus Madison is a case that gave courts the power to enforce that constitutional law against lawmakers, right? I mean, without Marbury against Madison, you know, if Congress passes a law that's unconstitutional, the remedy would be electoral, right, rather than judicial. Um, and th- we, that would be a very different world. Well, it seems to me that, that this paper, and, and you know, the, the stuff on crackdowns goes, I think, well beyond just the question of, of prosecutorial discretion, but it starts there, I think. And so this question of whether a prosecutor, what, what are the rules that govern a prosecutor, public or private, in bringing a claim? And on the private side, we've got like malicious prosecution, tort causes of action. We also have just the, the economics of it, right? We, we make mm. it, by you bearing your costs, we make it not worth your while to bring um, certain kinds of torts or contract actions. So there, there are those things. But on the public side, we have, it seems to me, the major, um, the major limitation is electoral or um, reputational. I mean, there are others. We've talked to John Pfaff about about prosecutors and their incentives. And there's a whole, you know, web of incentives that, that bear on prosecutors. So I don't mean to suggest that's the only one. Um, but it seems to me like part of what you're doing here is you're not exa- exactly suggesting that there be a Marbury versus Madison for the, um, for the, um, for, that, that kind of judicializes the law such as it is that governs the, uh, a, a public entity's choice to force an adjudication. Like that would be the equivalent there would be Marbury. But you do suggest they could do more, right? I mean, does this framework make some sense to you? I mean, it seems to me that there's a, that you rightly, it does seem like we're in that kind of non-Marbury. Is this making sense, Joe? I don't know. Totally. Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it but seems, I'm very familiar with the stuff you've written, yeah, so I can see why you're making the connection. Because it just seems like a hole, right? That there's this right. hole where, where there is a lot of discretion. And I'm wondering, you know, I'm just kind of generally interested in whether there's a pattern to where these holes fall in our law on the constitutional side, on the making side, and then on the, on the what I call procedure, but the, the idea of like the, the law, whatever it is, such as it is, that governs the choice whether to force an adjudication. Like, is there some pattern to that? But anyway. No, it's that. that okay, so that was a lot to digest. Um, but I, I think I, I, I mean, I, I had never thought of it in this way before, but you know, that there's like this kind of missing Marbury of enforcement. Um, and if the, and you know, if, a, if, a, if you, if you, if, if there's a law, if there's a statute, then there, there'll be judicial review of its, of its constitutionality. But if there's an enforcement policy that is effectively like a law in that it like, if it sets the effective speed limit or it sets the effective rule about not bringing, you know, strollers into parks, that there that there that there won't be uh, the same kind of review. I mean, but one 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 thing is that Marbury itself lets you review those kind the crackdowns or enforcement policies sure. just for their compliance with basic constitutional rules, right? So the First Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, etc. Then what I would be asking for is not just 
for Marbury, but what I, what I would then what I'm encouraging in this paper is is actually more of like a policy oriented review or a you know yeah it's like a, it's it's more policy oriented than Marbury you know because it's because mm-hmm. the question that I'm urging judges to ask is not just does this comply with the baseline constitutional rules does this comport with the literal reading of the statute but but I'm asking them to ask more than that. Why did you bring this prosecution? Why are you cracking down on this series of cases? Is this really a sensible use of uh, prosecutorial resources at this moment? Um, and those are questions that you know aren't they? They aren't actually what you know you would think of as being the responsibility of courts to ask. But but they make visible. I guess you're saying they make visible the issue. Like even even if they don't turn on it. I mean, even if it doesn't like formally end the crackdown or or yeah. or punish the actor like like it raises the you know by making it uh, i don't know i don't that's the question to the extent to which a judge can make visible a policy choice that otherwise would be invisible or or make visible a trade off in a policy right. choice that otherwise is well, invisible well you talk about jed rakoff as someone who you yeah. think is doing this yeah. right what is, what is it about his behavior that you think is comports with the judicial role but goes beyond case-by-case analysis. So, so what, Jed, what, what Judge Jed Rakoff has done is write about Department of Justice and SEC policy in, in broad terms. You know, he, so he said he's, he's discouraged certain kinds of heavy-handed prosecutorial tactics against, uh, against uh, regulated entities but he's, and, and, against, uh, and, and in order to promote uh, you know, the plea, uh, pleas. Um, and he's all, but he's also said, well, you're, you know, you're letting these other uh, entities off uh, too lightly. Um, and in, in those, and in, 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 in his public writings on this subject, he hasn't, um, you know, he, he hasn't transgressed any, uh, you know, he, he hasn't transgressed any rule. He hasn't, you know, he hasn't done anything that should get him, you know, kicked off the bench or anything. But people have said, well, you know, ought to you be doing this, you know? Uh, as, a, as a judge, should, should you be engaging in this type of commentary? Now, I, I, they say, you know, this is unseemly for somebody who's an Article Three judge to do uh, this kind of uh, extracurricular co- uh, commentating. Um, but I, but, but I, I guess, you know, I, I'm all for it. I mean, I... I yeah. How dare you, sir, share with us the lessons learned in your unique, in your unique <laughs> right. role in society. Yeah. He has this wealth of experience. He's, you know, he's been a prosecutor. You know, he's He's just so well versed in in um, in the practice and the norms of this uh, of these areas of law, and uh, you know his entire line of reasoning is there for you to see. You you don't have to agree with it, and he's not ordering anybody uh, to to uh, to do anything when he writes a New York Review of Books column. And I mean, and then on top of all of that, I think what he's doing is encouraging the better faithful execution of the law. So he's you know promoting this uh, this. This, this norm um, that is something that's desirable to everyone that the executive branch comport with. So the, these are public benefits that I, I think uh, are, are um, you know, not uh, adequately attended to, and I think that m- more judges can also uh, do this. 
in, in you know in the in the cases that come before them. Did you really have to step outside in a way the the kind of case as a unit of analysis because any given case could on its own terms be perfectly sensible without, uh, you know, this is sort of different from the Yates criticism or the Bond criticism where you're looking at it and those cases look strange on their face, right? But many cases in a crackdown would look perfectly fine on their face and it Mm -hmm. wouldn't be until you notice that there were a lot of them suddenly. And the the problem, right, is that that enforcement over the run of cases, there was that... um, Equal protection class of one cases. Uh, what right. was the name? Olek and yeah, Olek? yeah. No, no, it's the one after Olek Inquist? that. Inquist. Yeah, Inquest. Yeah, where, where Justice Roberts talks about the police officer coming back to you know. I think nobody who writes about this can avoid talking about traffic law, right? <laughs> the poli- I mean, the nature of enforcement is arbitrary, right? You could have pulled over that car. You can pull over that car, right? And so you're looking for some in order to. To, to say that a crackdown is wrong or a particular pattern of enforcement is wrong, you need to look for something beyond or, or qualitatively different from arbitrariness yeah. because arbitrariness is always there. And and this is why judges really are, as, as Mila explains at, at length in the piece, there's a real information asymmetry problem buried in this too. Right. That if, you, if you're looking to the judiciary to try to play a, a, a helpful role, right, they are playing catch up in the worst possible way when it comes to what the executive policy might be. If they're working case by case, the executive that a crackdown is exactly not case by case, mm-hmm. right. right? It's saying, let, we're going to do this across the board now, right? So by the time the judges figure it out, perhaps, um, or figure out how to grapple with it, there's already a ton of water that's gone under the bridge. You know, you're right. And, and, and in cases where the crackdown is just a bunch of charges followed by a bunch of, of pleas, you know, it's the, the judicial review there is very, very light. So, the, you know, so there, the only way for you to, for a judge to really make a difference would be to say, well, why are you charging in this way and causing all of these pleas to happen? Which is basically what, you know, one of the things Judge Rakoff has said. Do the office, I'm wondering if officer, um, so, so a lot of agencies have um, inspectors general. And I wonder if there isn't something in that mechanism or, or thinking a bit more uh, oddly, which I want to do, um, it, something about the Office of the Devil's Advocate, which used to be a real thing in the process of creating saints in the Catholic Church, right? Mm-hmm. So there was an advocate who was there called the Devil's Advocate because they were advocating against the sainthood of the person whose case was sort of being processed, right? Um, but but it's someone who's there to kind of make the opposite argument to engender a kind of accountability. Mm-hmm. Like there needs to be an executive branch official who is, and this sort of smashes the unitary executive, I suppose, but, but who says, look, you need to give reasons and you need to f- explain this crackdown in a way that shows it's not a bunch of self-interested garbage, but is instead a public-looking, faithful execution of the laws, right? Wouldn't we be better off with something like that, or is that just too bizarre? I, I, I think that it could, that it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, <laughs> I, my goal um, in this, in my goal as I was writing this was to basically try to propose things that were off the shelf, <laughs> you know, sort of Right. With lo- with low startup costs and sort of against the against type of of the law professor <laughs> cliche. <laughs> Instead of saying, let's have this massive revolution and right. all of these new institutions and change black letter law in all these ways and uh, you know, require all of these 
legislators to get on board. Um, you know, the, the proposal that I had was, you know, why don't you guys who are on the federal bench just write some op-eds, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got computers, you can write op-eds. You can write mean concurring opinions. You can ask mean questions at oral argument or pro not mean, but just probing questions. Uh, just go ahead and, and do it and don't feel that you're not uh, enforcing a constitutional norm mm. when, you're, when you're doing it. You're not acting out of turn. Right. Uh, you are, uh, you're just promoting this Article 2 value. So I, I know there, there, are, there are several scholars who have been writing about, you know, borrowing administrative law principles and applying them to uh, the, the criminal law side. And I totally applaud those all of those efforts this is i'm just uh, more um i was just trying to look for something that was more conveniently available um and and uh, the only thing standing between judges and doing that is just their sense of you know what their responsibilities are as an article 3 judge which is not which is not nothing uh but it's uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't require these large uh, setup costs let me ask one more question, if I could, just to come at it from a different angle um, on a, and then go off in a totally weird direction. Oh, boy. Um, I had another question, too. But, oh, OK. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just one. Like, I can tell you're concerned. Once you have the insight in the crackdowns domain that the case can be very much the wrong unit of analysis to try to see what's happening and see that there might be something that runs afoul of a constitutional norm, in, in your instance, faithful execution of the laws, and that if you just look at individual cases, you might never see it, right? Or, or even if you do see it, you won't see it for a very long time. It, was, it has me thinking the same thing arguably is happening with the non-delegation doctrine, and the evidence is the crackdown analysis on one side and its mirror image, the let up analysis on the other, right? Systematic non-enforcement. I guess the basic story would go something like this. In a world where there's more than... Ooh, eh, trailertainment. Hmm? It sounds like a movie trailer. Yeah, it's like a movie trailer. In a world where... Uh, in a world where there are more than five statutes... One man. And where the executive is given something less than infinite money. Yeah. Right? In other words, our world. There really is no such thing as truly bounded executive discretion. It, it's basically a mirage. Uh, and although you can't see that in individual cases, and although you can't see it in, in the context of individual agencies, it's there. What do you make of that? Is that too pessimistic? I, I think that's all right, but I, I, don't, I don't think that executive discretion has to be wholly bounded. Um, I just think it has to be channel. Ah, so, right. So there's a, a non-delegation, you know, it's not just boundedness or not, it's channeled or not. Well, I was thinking of this in terms of, like, the, the enemy of this kind of discretion about how to use these tools. If you just see statutory text as, and, and regulations as tools, right, and we debate whether we should look at the purposes of those tools or not, or whether we should just infer it from text, etc., standard interpretive kind of thing, right? Um, the enemy is not arbitrariness, Right. The enemy is the active use of those tools to turn against important values. Right. And those are those important values are contained in, you know, maybe they're constitutional, maybe they're societal, what, whatever they are. Maybe different people will see them differently. Like whether you see whether you see a crackdown is serving the public interest or or actively defeating it, like it totally depends on what you think our values are. Right. 
But the fact that there will be arbitrary enforcement in the sense that it could have been that person, but it's this person, and it could have been that, but it's that, like, that's always going to be there. And if you get distracted by that, right, if you, if you get distracted by the arbitrariness in any one case, I think you miss the point that you're making, Joe, right, which is that, you know, that's always going to be there. There's always going to be, um, it, it, it's, the question is, whatever the pattern that the executive chooses, that pattern being somewhat arbitrary because there are no real bounds in a world of finite resources, mm-hmm. um, at least in our world where the statutes are such that you would need far more resources than we have to enforce right. in every case, um, then then it always comes down to a value judgment about that pattern. Yeah, and that's a common problem across you know non-enforcement and, and crackdowns in your, where, where you are, the, you know, the, how you deploy your prosecutorial resources or your enforcement resources that are limited in the face of all of these competing commands should just turn on your your best good faith judgment about public the public interest, you know, constitutional values, rule of law values, and your legislative authority. I mean, it's a it's a complex of those things, and you have to you you have to come to your best judgment about what the best way is to uh, deploy the the resources that you have available. But there. But but no matter what you do, at the end of the day, there'll always be you know one speeder who gets caught and not another, and that there, I don't right. think there's any way around that. So, so if you take that pattern, right? I mean, there are going to be some values. You could, so you say, okay, well, this pattern of enforcement is totally random, and so it serves maybe maybe it serves the purpose of of equality, but it doesn't serve the purpose of like you know r- you know rational pursuit of any particular aims. Um, but there's nothing in the Constitution or in our constitutional value structure about maximizing rational pursuit of aims, right? Um, necessarily, you, you could, you know, maybe there's due problem. I don't know. But but if the pattern is one where you are, you know, enforcing it against a particular racial group, right? That's that's one where there is there should be very very solid consensus about the conflict of that particular choice and constitutional obligation, right? So even if there's no Marbury generally governing the judicial review of every such like enforcement choice there is a judicial review of that kind of enforcement choice yes there is and and then there's other values too so you know the the values of reliance so that's something that Zach Price has you know written about lately in the context of discussing whether or not it would be appropriate for the for this administration to roll back uh, you know DACA and DAPA or to start enforcing mm-hmm. against medical marijuana laws if you know, if there were those, if those kinds of crackdowns occurred um, on you know DACA recipients or on um, you know people who have been uh, selling um, medical marijuana and that have authorized its sale, um, you know the, the 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 constitution there would be a constitutional value at stake there, which is the value of fairness and reliance, even though there's no constitutional rule that prohibits the executive branch from suddenly enforcing a law that it has said it wouldn't enforce uh, in a non-binding way. Yeah. Um, so, th- so there's, there's a, so I guess that's, you know, that's Marbury plus, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not just Marbury. It's, it's something beyond Marbury uh, that, uh, that, that, a, that a court would be looking at. Well, I, I don't know if it's, pl- but it's, it's the kind of adaptation of, of adjudication to that particular institutional role. I mean, there, you know, a, a person deciding whether to bring an adjudication or force an adjudication has a different set of considerations than someone who's writing prospective legislation. And so we might 
suspect there would be different kind of stereotypical failures from from each of those. And so, you know, the Marbury for prosecutors is going to look a lot different than the Marbury for legislators, even though there will be some overlap, right? I mean, the equal protection is a value which you can, you know, right. thread through all of those. But I, I would think, too, that um, that whether you're looking at crackdown or and you should we should use this word crack ups for letoffs, crackdowns or crack ups, because crack ups like the, it, 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 it breaks apart the existing legal order, the existing legal regime. Mm-mm. Nope. It's, yeah. Crackdowns nope. or crack ups. Nope. Um, <laughs> but like what seems to matter, like the reliance principle seems to be about the velocity of that. Like the velocity of the change in enforcement pattern is, is high enough. If that change is fast enough, then it really looks like a legal change, right? It, it like, it seems to be almost indetectably different from an actual change in the law itself. Right. Whereas I think changes in legal enforcement patterns over a long period you ask someone at one end of that period and ask someone at the other end of the period what the law is, and they'll probably report the same thing, right? But if those changes are rapid, probably not. Well, I I'm not sure about that. Like if there was, you know, if, if there's, well, I, I'm not sure whether the length of time m- matters so much. It's still, the, the, don't you think it's still an effective, the, 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 the enforcement pattern is going to translate what the rule on the books is into the, into like the, the you know the law in action and whether that occurs over the course of a year or over the course of 10 years the effective legal rule is still you know x at the beginning and y at the end i guess what i'm saying is that i think that when we read law in the books um we can kind of we also have in mind our current circumstances and we kind of adapt our model of that of the text that we read to the circumstances in which we find ourselves so like yeah, I get it. So the, you know, the, the speed limit, I don't know, it says this, you got to obey the posted speed limit. I kind of know what that means. And if you ask me what the rule is, I'll say this, but, um, and if, and if like 20 years from now, they tolerate me going, say 20 miles over the speed limit rather than just five miles over the speed limit, I would still say, you know, that, that the law is basically this. Um, and, and I wouldn't perceive it as a, as a change in the, in the law itself. Whereas if they changed it overnight, it would seem like they raised the speed limits. Right. Um, so I, I think there's just some like we fill in when we read law, maybe we fill in what we're reading with our current experience. And it's and it doesn't feel like disruption for that law to be enforced differently um, if that if the if the different enforcement is kind of spread over a long period. I'm just kind of talking out loud, but I'm just I'm, I'm just wondering, like, what what makes the what because it, it seems like there's more than just the. You know, I, I had planned for a particular regime and the enforcement regime changed and now I have to plan for a different one. That kind of planning reliance, it seems like there's more going on there when enforcement patterns change rapidly than just that kind of strict reliance. It seems like there's just a different, it, feel, it may feel to the people living under it like the law has really changed. I mean, I, I think the particular thing that, that, that Zach Price brings to the front for his article is just, you know, these are people who have been sort of induced to start doing things that are violations of the law by these stated policies of uh, of, of non-enforcement. Um, and there's a particularly sharp concern there about fairness um, because they may never have entered these businesses if it wasn't for the stated enforcement policy at the time. So there, so there it's not just, it's not just any old planning, you know, it's like planning induced by officials. Right. 
it's not just it's not just breaking the speed limit. It's like there's a post-it on the speed limit sign that says, by the way, you can drive <laughs> 10 miles an hour faster in this zone. And, and where I maybe went out and bought a car that can only go that fast or something like that, right? I mean, it's like, you right. know, you've, you've planned your entire existence around this zone of non-enforcement. Right, exactly. So this, this um, conversation we've been having the last few minutes suggests that there are, there are pathologies in crackdowns that are well beyond self-interest. Like, the, the main target of the paper seems to be venality, that, you know, cr- crackdowns that are pursued not in a, based on a good faith assessment of the best enforcement level from a fair reading of the statute, that's um, one problem. But these sound like th- you, could, you could be making a good faith assessment of the best reading of the statute but you just aren't as sensitive as you should be to the important norm of, for the examples we were just talking about, reliance interests. Or like treating like cases alike in time rather than just in, you know, you know. I no, mean, this, I don't this know. idea of treating like cases alike in the, is like an important principle in the common law generally, obviously, right? And in adjudication generally, treating like cases alike is like one of the fundamental yeah. judicial norms, right? Sure. And And the crackdown is a sharp boundary between treating different cases differently, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like it's like the definition, at least along that dimension, the enforcement d- dimension. We, by so. grabbing and putting to yeah. a different, on a different point in the continuum. Right. And, and you might, you might object to that even without thinking of reliance by a particular person. Mm, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. So, but these, but what they have in common is they're beyond self-interest problems. Right. Right. So, so you're completely right. So the, the, the concerns, that there's sort of two, two parallel concerns with the crackdown, um, the two, two parallel Problems like one, one, one has to do with with banality and self-interest and um, sort of buttering your own bread uh, as you're the enforcer, um, and the other has to do with basically performing an incompetent accounting of constitutional values, <laughs> like doing the enforcer adopting a crackdown that imposes you know too sharp a cost to uh, you know constitutional norms of equal protection or uh, freedom of speech or, um, you know, uh, due process notice, you know, or uh, fairness um, in order to, in order to implement the crackdown. And then the, and then the problem with that, of course, is that the, you know, the enforcer, um, enforcer's calculations about those, those things are, are, uh, are going to have costs for the public and, and, uh, and, and these constitutional values shouldn't be infringed on unless there's some, you know, really good benefit on the other side. It's such an interesting paper. I mean, there's so much more to it and we haven't really done it full justice yet. But, you know, I, we haven't done the full crackdown on the, on the issue. <laughs> I want to do something we haven't done in a very long time. Oh, wow. To wind okay. up the show. Is that okay? Sure. Um, well, wait, let's wait to hear what it is. <laughs> <laughs> you might need to cut all this out. Of course, yeah. Well, I, I'll cut out every. You know, most of this I'll cut out, except for Mila's great thoughts, right? And um, uh, but Mila, suppose is it Highway three hundred and ten? Is that the one in Florida that you mentioned in the paper? I said it's three hundred and one. Maybe it's three hundred and one. I, I know the digits. I don't know their order. So there's some highway in Florida, and yeah. and it's a great example. And uh, I I was going to ask about it anyway, but I'm gonna I'm not I'm gonna ask about it in a different context. So so it's one where. Where the cops were, they were funding what, like ninety eight percent of the of the um, police department was funded by these traffic stops from out of staters barreling down this highway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's three. It's three oh one, and 
Um, they had their 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 fines represented one hundred and five percent of the police budget in in uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, and, and I was going to ask you earlier about. I mean, it's worth thinking about. Like, like is this a so this is a crack crackdown which uh, which cracked up? Like, it was by um, it sounds like by the uh, by the state of Florida because there were a lot of football fans who were going through there, and people were like, you know, it it was. Uh, it, that was the ticketed the town's representative the Florida State Legislature, which is not, not the guy you want to give a speeding ticket to. <laughs> <laughs> that was fortuitous. Maybe not the best story of how to how to break up a crackdown, but um, but anyway, let's suppose that you're you're driving down uh, this 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 freeway. You pass this town, and you notice that they're out there with all their radar, radar cop equipment, and they are you know, and, and but you were lucky enough because maybe you knew about this place because you're an expert in crackdown, so you understood all this stuff, but. As you pass through, you see someone else coming the other way, barreling down the road at what you think is a safe speed, but clearly they're gonna they're gonna be pulled over. Do you do you, uh, do you flash your lights at them to let them know? Um, you personally, he's asking you a personal light flashing speed trap question. And, and since it is a personal question, you of course can can take the fifth on this. But but if you'd like to. <laughs> This is a long-standing trope of our show. In, in, for the first like twenty, thirty episodes, we went back and forth on this whole speed trap question. We, we you and know, we asked lots of guests about. We found this. early twenty, early, uh, early twentieth-century cases that on this issue, which cited like Immanuel Kant and stuff. You remember this? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, it, this is a big issue. And just for Mila's benefit, Christian, you were you were a person who was sort of proudly no, advocating. What, what, no, what? No, don't prejudice Mila. I'm not trying to no, prejudice no, her. I, she, I'm saying it's impossible to prejudice her because we have one of each of us. <laughs> Go ahead, Mila. No, I, I, I was going to say, I fear I'm, I'm wandering into some kind of speed trap with this question. <laughs> <laughs> I understand what's at stake here, but yes, I think I would try to have, try to uh, signal to them. I mean, the, the American, the, I, I think I mentioned this somewhere in there, the American Automobile Association, they put billboards on that stretch of road to they say what you ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, this was the ultimate light flashing, right? A billboard right. saying, you know, you're about right. to enter a town where the local cops are acting like jackasses and they're going to find you and, and it's going to be unpleasant. And that's how they're funding all the equipment, which is, you know, um, yeah. Uh, so, 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 so you're kind of like retreating into a particularly bad example where even like major national organizations are putting up billboards. So that, and, and, and Joe, even in that case, you wouldn't flash your lights. That, no, I, I, I would. You would. Sure. Oh my gosh. This is a big day for oral <laughs> yeah, I now, don't think so. Early in the run of the show too, Mila, Joe, to defend his monstrous behavior of not warning other <laughs> drivers about these sort of things, tried to maintain for a while that it was impossible to see lights during this the day. This is not true. You I said, did not do that. You did. You said. You said it's during the day. People can't see lights. You you were unaware that <laughs> lights were could be seen during the day. And and, and so he actually performed an experiment. To his credit, I did. To to Joe's credit, as an intellectually honest person, he conducted an experiment in a parking garage. I'm told. Is that right? Correct, correct. To verify that one could see lights during the day. Yeah. Hmm. You can, it turns out. <laughs> yeah. I can see that I'm wandering into an old fight <laughs> thing to do with. <laughs> but it, it's nice to know that Mila is is not at all monstrous and right. has written a ter- terrific article um, and, uh, and, and would flash her lights to warn you, Joe, and all of our listeners. And, and, and maybe, I, I feel like she's convinced you. I love that. Yeah, I it's feel true. like this is a breakthrough. I'm, I'm, I am developing into a more complex and moral, uh, <laughs> moral being, and I appreciate that opportunity. 
Mila, is there anything else about this paper that we should definitely highlight? I mean, I know we didn't get into all of it. There, there are many parts to it. It's a very rich it. paper, so it's yeah. very hard to There's in a, a short lot of like, fine analysis of the principal agent problems involved and, and other great examples. Like you go into a lot more detail about some of these really great examples of crackdowns that help one think about the problem. So obviously, you know, we're going to link the paper for people to see on their own. But is there anything else we should highlight or have we... No, I mean, I, you know, I, I guess I, I would just say that I'm going to, um, I am going to write another paper about um, the, the judicial role and the type of, just basically to justify the, the proposals that I make in the last part of the paper. So, you know, if anyone's interested, then that, you know, I'll, I'm going to be working on that over the next um, few months and year. <laughs> cool. Great. Can't wait. Well, thanks a bunch for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. This is really fun. Thanks oh. a lot. All right, I'm going to hit stop.